Good morning, friends. As you know, we're taking up our series in Romans, uh, starting with Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 to 32. So it's Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although we know, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife and deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That didn't sound very much fun, did it? <laughs> and uh, friends, the truth is most people in our world don't understand the extent of their sinfulness, nor believe in the judgment of God. Otherwise, they would live differently, right? Um, they therefore think they have little need of Jesus, the gospel is not good news, and God is not glorious. I remember running an outreach uh, discussion group, um, going back a few years now to, I was at Springwood High School, and we were running a lunchtime Christian group, and we advertised this meeting, and we had 50 people turn up. And there were about 20 Year 12 students came to debate with us uh, in, in a school classroom. And, um, and I remember one girl, Rhiannon, saying very clearly there was nothing wrong with her, and she didn't see any need to be forgiven by Jesus. I'm fine as I am, thank you. 
And as we talked, we realised that she and her friends were essentially pleasure seekers. Sex was to be enjoyed with whoever and whenever. Abortion was a right. Homosexual practice was just a sexual preference and not a sin. And uh, as we talked during our discussion, and one of the persons realised why we were so concerned for them. He said this, if God is going to judge us and you think we are going to hell, you must be really sad for us. Suddenly, it just got quiet for a moment, that gathering. She realized that we believed that they were under the judgment of God because they chose to reject God and to live life their own way. And she was right. We were sad because of that. I must say it was a very engaging 30 minutes at lunchtime. But I love the fact that Rhiannon thought she was neither sinful nor guilty and no need to follow Jesus. As long as you uh, do whatever you want to do with consenting adults, it's all good. And that's a lie. And friends, sadly, much of what is regarded as legal today in Australia, God regards as sin and immorality. Sin and immorality. And, uh, and the Apostle Paul tells us, and right, remember he's writing in the first century, that God's wrath or God's anger is already being revealed against ungodly men and women who live such depraved lives. He says in Romans 1.16, and we saw last week, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So obviously the Jewish people are the ones who had the word of God. Uh, God had revealed himself to them. And so therefore they had the Old Testament and they knew it. And then the Gentile world, if you're not familiar, is everyone else. Because the gospel goes now from uh, Israel to the nations of the earth. And in that community, Israel lived a certain way, seeking to honour God, but the nations were pretty wild. If you think Australians and sexuality and our values today are wild, it's nothing on the first century. It is nothing on the first century. We'll get to that. But you see, people won't come to Christ until they recognise their need of him. I didn't come to Christ at the age of 15 until I realised that as good as I was and as obedient to my parents as I was and as nice I was to my teachers, as hard I worked at school, though I was still a rebel and I was selfish and I, I lived my life my own way, when I came to that realisation, I repented and received Christ. And so part of what we do as Christians is we teach the truth about life and, and reality is to help show people that there is a perfect God and we fall short of his perfection and therefore we need a saviour. Only when they get that will they be saved. And this unpopular principle lies behind, behind Romans 1.18 through chapter 3 verse 20. We're going to cover the next couple of weeks. We start today. So what Paul is doing before he gets to the gospel in chapter 3, 21 to 31, he's marshalling the evidence against us to prove our guilt and secure our conviction. Gentiles are sinners. Uh, other people are sinners. We're all sinners in some way, fall short of God's standard. And you see, he never loses sight of the gospel as he does this, though. In chapter 1, verse 17, he says, In the gospel, thy righteousness from God is revealed. And then 321, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, he repeats that statement, but now a righteousness from God has been made known. A way of finding peace with God, being right with God, has been made known. But between 117 and 321, he, he really describes the fallenness, the brokenness, the sinfulness of all of humanity. And today's passage, it's more the depraved Gentile society, 118 to 32. And uh, there were some 
people who are better in that first society, but then there's the hypocritical righteousness of moralizers, Jews and Gentiles who look down on the others, well, we're not like those people, the Gentile society. And then there's the confident self-righteousness of Jewish people. Jewish people think, well, we're better than them, we have the word of God. And he shows that they too fall short of God's standards. And then chapter 3, 9 and 20, he says, well, the whole human race, we're all gone, right? We don't have a hope. Unless God does something to save us. And he starts in verse 8 and he says, the wrath of God is being revealed. So the wrath of God is part of God's righteousness, his perfection. God does what is right and he's right to oppose and to judge those who oppose him. And uh, someone said, if grace is God acting graciously, then wrath is God reacting in revulsion against sin. His deep personal abhorrence of evil. Friends, God hates murder. God hates immorality. God sees that and it's offence to his holiness. Not only is it an offence to his holiness, but he knows it brings destruction to relationships. Well, you get killed, you're dead, right? <laughs> that destroys your relationship. If you commit adultery, that destroys your, your partner and your family and your kids. It has ramifications down the line. When you lie and you cheat, it has implications on other people. You see, why God hates it is not only is it offensive to him, but it has ramifications in bringing terrible uh, events to other people. John Stott says God's wrath is his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone it or come to terms with it, his just judgment upon it. Friends, the gospel is necessary because there is such a thing as the wrath of God. And only the gospel salvation by grace through faith brings deliverance from that wrath. And the entire weight of verse 16 to 17 we saw last week contains a summary of the epistle rests on the assumption that we are apart from the gospel under the anger of the wrath of God. Otherwise, the gospel has no meaning. Why? People have said to me, well, I don't need Jesus to die for me. What are you talking about? I'm doing pretty well. They don't understand that they are sinful under the wrath of God and they need a saviour. I'll take, for example, the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell. Uh, he put it this way. He says, on why I am not a Christian. He writes this. There is one serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character... That is, that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ, certainly as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment. And one who does find repeatedly a vindictive fury against those people who would not listen to his preaching. You do not, for instance, find that in Socrates. You find him quite bland and urbane toward the people who would not listen to him. And it's to my mind far more worthy of a sage or a wise man to take that line than to take the line of indignation. There is a difference between the two. Jesus is God in human flesh, holy, perfect. And Bertrand Russell never saw that. But he says that the wrath of God has been revealed against who? Verses 18 to 23. Against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So God's anger, notice that it's already been revealed. It's already playing out. It's not like God will judge us in the end, yes, but his, his anger, his judgment is already being manifest in our society. Because people, says, are suppressing the truth. There's enough in creation, he says, for people to realise that there is a God and they should listen to him. 
They suppress the truth. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. God is saying, and the psalmist said, and Paul says, there's enough in creation to make us think there is a God out there and I should do what he says. They they knew God, they neither glorified him. In other words, they knew him, they knew enough about him. They never gave him glory as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, they became fools. Friends, if you don't see the glory of God in creation, if you don't see that there's someone bigger than you who has formed us and made us for relationship with him, uh, he says your, your thinking becomes futile, it's vain and empty, your hearts are darkened, and you don't show any interest in God in doing his thing. And for the Gentiles, they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And they bowed down to worship them. He says, you guys made statues of things. You took wood and you took stone and you made your gods. You you should have seen in creation that there is a great God far outside of you. But you worshipped other gods. And I wonder what our gods are today. Bring into the first century. You see, some places in the world, they are bowing down to statues still, aren't they? And we send missionary workers across the globe so people can come to know Jesus. But, you, you know, I reckon the biggest God today for Australians is self. It's my life. I run my life. I control. I do what I want. Or pleasure. I will do whatever will bring me most pleasure. Or I materialism. I will gain and accumulate. And if I have the car and I have the house and I have the money and I can go on my holidays where I want, that's enough. That's my God. Or astrology or numerology for some people. Or it may be fame. Some people who were close to fame and and honour and glory and all of a sudden they had an accident. All of a sudden they had an injury and they couldn't become that soccer star or that football star they always hoped to be. And all of a sudden they realised that their God was their fame. And now they have to think again about their life. It could be family for some of us in the Western world. Our family becomes our God. Everything is about your family. I must say, as a, as a new grandfather, I tell you, those little th- babies, they steal your heart, right? It's very hard to think about other things. Got to go to work, got to preach. No, no, let me have a look at my little baby. <laughs> That's right. And, and it's like that for people, isn't it? And then I have three daughters and, and a wife and, and life. We could worship family and instead of God, I had someone say to me once years ago, she said, I can't give my life to Jesus because I cannot love Jesus more than my two daughters. I cannot love Jesus more than my two daughters. And God says he wants first place. Not loving Jesus now, not following Jesus now, neither are her daughters. But maybe if she'd put Jesus first and love Jesus more. She would love her daughters even more. <laughs> you don't take away from love for your daughters when you put God first. You've got a greater capacity and greater strength and you build your life on God. Or maybe your sporting team. You know, some of you might know that I've become a Celtic fan. Celtic is a football team in Scotland, going back to my Scottish roots. <laughs> it's my wife's Scottish roots, okay, I'll claim anything. But they have an Australian coach, Ange Postacoglu. They, and they won... Uh, the league, and I watched them last night, 9.15, and there's 60,000 people singing and cheering and chanting. Their ground is called paradise. 
And for some of those people, I remember something Ange said, he said, you know, we all have problems and difficulties uh, in life. And after they had a big win a, a few months ago, he said, but what we've been able to do is give you something positive to hold on to that helps you to forget your problems in life. It's an alternative God, right? Enjoy your sport. I enjoy it. It's nice to share with them. But sometimes your team can become your God. Thirdly, the wrath of God abandons sinners to their willful self-centeredness. Uh, so how's God's wrath revealed? There is the final judgment, yes, that's the final time when Christ returns. But he says God's wrath has been revealed from heaven now, in verse 18, and he explains it in this terrible threefold refrain, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. He said this is how God's judgment is coming. God hands sinners over to themselves. He says, if you want to live this way, God says, okay, go do it. That's a judgment of God. Because God's saying, I, I won't show you grace if you just want to live that way. You want to just commit adultery? Do you want to visit prostitutes? Do you want to watch pornography? Okay. If you really want to go that way, do it. That's the judgment of God. Because what you want is God's grace, God's restraining work in your life. and saying, God, don't let me go on and just give myself over. Please stop me going there. Cecil writes, it operates not by God's intervention, but precisely by his not intervening, by letting men and women go their own way. And how many of us, and how many here, have made mistakes, and you just continued in that, and, and you've just continued, and before you knew it, you've gone way too far, you think, how did I end up here? She chose to reject God, and, says, you, and God says, you really want to live that way? Go ahead. And I think God is saying to our society in Australia today, you really want to live that way? Okay. He hands us over. That's the judgment of God. And we're trying to live for God in the midst of that. Verse 24, he gave them over to sexual impurity. Uh, 26, he gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28, he gave them over to a depraved mind. Let's have a quick look at these. He gave them over to sensual sins. means to sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. The Bible is very clear that uh, sex is to be enjoyed within a marriage relationship for a man and a woman. Uh, we see that in Genesis chapter 2. We see that affirmed by Jesus in the Gospels when they ask about marriage. One man, one woman, together for life, ideally. And sex is only to be enjoyed within a marriage relationship, never outside that, but only within that marriage relationship. But clearly, the people in the Gentile society are, are sleeping with all types of people. And part of the reference may be to what's called ritual prostitution, that many of the idolatrous systems of the first century uh, included uh, temple prostitutes that people would, would have sex with as part of their worship, part of their worship. And uh, they reject God, they worship false gods, and therefore it plays out in a number of different ways. Now, friends, I think uh, for us in Australia and the Western world, it's the, that sexual revolution that started, when was it, the 60s? 1960s, most of you weren't alive back then, right? We think it's a new thing. It started then. Make your up your own choice. It's a pursuit of pleasure. And pornography at the moment is one of the, the greatest dangers, I think, to, to our holiness, our perfection, and seeking to honour Christ, taking a great hold on so many people, especially men. And it's destroying marriages. It's destroying minds. It's destroying hearts. But you see, there are consequences, aren't there, to sin. Adultery breaks marriages. Family breakdown, there's child molestation, there's sexually transmitted diseases and so on. 
And let me say very clear, I think what God is telling us, that one night stands degrade you, group sex degrades you, adultery degrades you, prostitution degrades you, filling your mind with pornography degrades you. So sexual behaviour that was common in Paul's time in both Greece and Rome was a scandal even to the pagan thinkers. Some of the other pagans of the day who were going, yeah, these guys are you're crazy. Why do you live like this? Life is more than simply your bodies and uh, some sexual pleasure. Secondly, shameful, he gave him over to, we might say, homosexuality or practicing homosexual acts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Natural relations, natural use of sex in accordance with the Creator's intention, Genesis chapter 2, male and female, unite and become one flesh. That's God's plan. Unnatural use of sex, which is contrary to the Creator's intention. And... Uh, Big issue in Australia today. Careful what I say and what I don't say. Careful what you say and you don't say in social media before you get sued before the courts. But what we're saying, the Bible says, that God calls his people to heterosexual relationships and sex within a marriage relationship. Outside of that is God handing people over to immorality. Now, the general attitude among the Greeks and Romans of the day, by the way, go back to the first century, was that homosexual love was preferred to heterosexual love. It's not a new thing here. See, when the church came in and started teaching heterosexual love and marriage and commitment, it blew that, that world apart. Because they were so different to the Greeks and the Romans of the day. And Greek culture taught that homosexual love was the purest and highest of loves. Many high-born Greeks maintain male lovers along with their wives. So Romans 1 describes every major city in the world, Hong Kong, San Francisco, Vienna, Zagreb, Berlin, New York, Tokyo, Sydney, whatever. That's what it was like. And they received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion, God's judgment. Let me make a few comments on this. There are authentic Christians today, and maybe some of you, who are same-sex attracted. They don't want to be, but they are. And maybe they pray to God, but he hasn't changed their orientation. Sometimes as same-sex attracted Christians, I've read their stories and engage with them, sometimes God changes their orientation and they pursue a heterosexual relationship and marriages. God does that. God is capable of doing that. Don't believe the lies that you read in the media that that never happens. Right? But at the same time, there are many Christians... Uh, who are Bible teachers and leaders who said, we've prayed, we sought the Lord, but we are still attracted, naturally, for us, to the same sex. But they are choosing, because they want to honour God, uh, they are choosing to remain celibate, or for some of them, God's then led them into heterosexual marriages. Some of our best teachers, Bible teachers in the world, are in that situation. An Anglican minister, Sam Albury, who writes on this, Anglican minister, he says, I'm celibate, I'm same-sex attracted, but I'm going to honour God's word and God's truth. I will not have sex outside with anyone because I'm not married to anyone. Jackie Hill Perry is a, is a woman speaker who spoke at a One Love conference, I think, last year. Again, she'll tell her story. Uh, Wesley Hill, another uh, great speaker, who's written a book called Washed and Waiting. He said, as I grew up and I realised 
I wasn't attracted to women, um, but I know God's word is very clear. Sex is only to be enjoyed within a marriage relationship with a man and a woman, so he remains single and encourages others. So just story after story, God's people. And so in the past, we used to say, just pray and God will change you. I think what we've realized over the last 30, 40 years, that it doesn't always happen that way. And some of the people said, oh, God changed me, and realized they were still struggling with same-sex attraction. And so we as a church need to welcome and love people uh, as God's people and realize that some of our brothers and sisters... Uh, I guess I don't want, they probably don't want to defy, define themselves as gay Christians, and there's a big debate on what language you use these days about that. But they'll say, oh, I'm same-sex attracted, but I'm going to be faithful to God and God's word. Our difficulties come when people say we're Christians, we're same-sex attracted, God made us that way, so therefore we're going to enter into homosexual relationships with associated sexual activity and so on, and, uh, and God will be pleased with that, right? And some uh, there are groups who are teaching that now and effectively dividing the church. If you read the me- in the media this week, you'll know that the Angl- General Synod of the Anglican Church in Australia was meeting. And one of the things that came before the Anglican Synod uh, was the issue of is marriage between a man and a woman exclusively or can it be two women and two men, as the law of the land says today. Uh, the reason they brought it up uh, for reaffirmation is because... There are some Anglican leaders in Victoria who blessed, had a service of blessing of a civil same-sex marriage. And the rest of the church are saying, well, hold on, what are you doing? Our, our prayer book, our, our teaching says marriage between a man and a woman, exclusive, exclusive um, from all others. That's it. And so they brought a motion to see if the synod would reaffirm that truth. That's simple. It's already their belief. Ask if they would reaffirm it. This is how the vote went. They have three houses. In the lower house, the laity, that means members, not clergy, right? 63 to 47 said yes, marriage is between a man to a woman. 63 yes, 47 no. Even the lady, 47 said no, but it passed, right? In the clergy, 70 said yes, we affirm marriage is between a man and a woman. 39 who are able to vote said no. In the house of the bishops, which is the highest one, Ten bishops said, yes, we affirm it. Twelve bishops said, no. So it didn't pass because the bishops didn't pass it. And then there were, I was reading further stories, then there were more motions taken from the, the laity and the clergy asking that the bishops repent. <laughs> How dare you? The, the members, it's like if I'm teaching a heresy, you know, church members can gather and they, at our business meeting and say, Ange, repent of what you just taught. That's not in the Bible. And sack me, right? You can sack me in a couple of weeks if you like. This process, but you, you could. <laughs> and they're writing, they couldn't agree to affirm that marriage is between a man and a woman. If you throw out the authority of the Bible, you can believe anything. Be on your guard. I love this verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were made holy now, you were justified, you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So 
Whoever you are, whatever you've done in the past, God can take you and forgive you and make you new, make you one of his children. And that's the great news for all of us, isn't it? Now, sometimes uh, it's focused on some of the sexual areas, but in all areas, we've all failed in some way. God wants to make us new. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to another area. It's not just about sexual impurity. It's not just about homosexual acts. It says all types of antisocial sins. It says they become filled with every kind of wickedness. God hands them over. Evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips. Yeah, so gossips makes the list, right? Well, I haven't done anything. You know, you know that story you told the other day? Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. I love that expression. I mean, I hate it, but I love it. You know what I mean. It's that people just look out for ways to create more evil. And I was just thinking of uh, people being shot uh, in Belmore and Greenacre, all around the area, people in drug trades and families fighting one another, finding new ways to kill someone, one of their enemies. They disobey their parents. That's interesting. It's just when your parents is in there because respect of parents is important. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no faithfulness, no love, no mercy. And there are others who approve of those who practice them. Others go, yeah, go for it. You want to be immoral, go for it. You want to cheat, go for it. You know, he insults you. Hit him back. Go for it. Get him. They approve of those who practice them. God says to the Gentile world, because you choose to reject God and do your own thing, God hands you over. He hands you over. He hands you over. And this is what it looks like when he hands you over. But there is great hope. We are living in a mad, bad world. We see it in Ukraine. Terrible crimes there. We see it in Yemen and disasters and wars and abuse. We see it in uh, child exploitation, child slavery, amongst other things. We see it in domestic abuse. We see it everywhere, but it still brings us hope. We're in a mad, bad world, but he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. You know, Gentile, who used to live like this? There's hope for you, he says. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Romans 3.21, but now, but now. That's the best expression in the whole Bible, that one, by the way. But now. In Greek we say, nuni de, nuni de. We will not agree. That's the expression, don't get that. Because he describes all the sinfulness. We're going to be there in sinfulness for another two weeks, the brokenness. And then we go, but now. A righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And it's all about a dying saviour who brings us back to God and brings us hope forever. Friends, that's why we send workers to the ends of the earth, or we send workers to Lebanon and to Indonesia and to Mozambique and to Thailand, because we want to bring a message of hope and transformation and forgiveness to the nations of the earth. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you loved us despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion, despite our dumb choices, at times evil choices. And Lord, we realise as we look at our own world that uh, we're not much different to the first world of, or the world of the first century in the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world. 
doing our own thing, chasing our own gods, seeking our own pleasure. We pray that we would see how great and good and merciful you are, full of grace, and how the death of Jesus on our behalf and his resurrection brings us hope for a new day, a better day, a better world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.